Last week we finished chapter 9, which is the 70 weeks, which is sort of mostly why everybody studies Daniel in the Christian church. Now we're going to do 10 and 11. And 10 and 11 are what I fondly refer to as the soap opera, because what it is is a list of the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kings and their rivalries and intermarriages and wars and it's just given in an outline form very hard to keep track of because the listing is so detailed and the sequencing is so correct and the events take place a couple of hundred years after Daniel lived so lots and lots of Bible scholars believe that the book of Daniel was essentially Maccabee propaganda in other words they were writing about history as they knew it, and they were writing it in a prophetic style with the intention of shoring up the Jewish war effort. Two things that I find persuasive in coming against that particular argument is Daniel is in the Septuagint, which was translated before the events in the historical section in chapter 11. So the Septuagint was translated about 300 BC and the events that are in Daniel 11 are about 200 BC. So it's about 100 years before. And the other part of that is of course Yeshua himself refers to Daniel the prophet in Matthew 24. So I figure if Yeshua calls him a prophet and we have documentary evidence that the book is older than the Maccabean Revolt. I'm going with prophecy. You can go anywhere you want. So anyway, we're in chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, is after the destruction of Babylon. Remember Babylon was destroyed back in Daniel 7, Belshazzar's feast. Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, so this is now after that event and Cyrus is king and Daniel is of course still quite alive and well and has risen to a position of influence within the Persian Empire. Verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. You'll remember at the end of chapter 8, in verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went out about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel has received several visions that have disturbed him greatly. And so as he's getting ready to receive this next visitation, he has been fasting and praying. And I will suggest to you that the reason for that is that he is upset about the various visions and dreams that he has received. So here he's been three weeks, and he's on what I would call a modified fast. He got rid of all the luxuries. So no delicacies, no meat, so it was on vegetables only. And of course you remember when he was a young man, having first been taken into captivity 
by Nebuchadnezzar, he was offered food from the king's table, and he says, let's try a vegetarian diet so we don't have to defile ourselves with non-kosher meat. So essentially he's going back to the day of his youth when he was on a vegetarian diet, and he's not eating meat or drinking wine or any delicacies and not anointing himself, which is to say one of the things in those days that they did, if you would go to a party, I understand they would give you a little button and the button was made out of oil with what are essentially essential oils mixed in. And what you do is you put this button on top of your head and the heat of your body would melt the oil and the oil and the fragrances would go down on your hair and your head and so you'd smell good. Now, one of the things to understand is they didn't use deodorant back then. So people smell. Most of us bathe every day and that's typically quite enough to keep you from being offensive. But bathing every day was not something that was culturally necessarily done. So you would go some time without taking an actual bath. And in fact, uh, by the Middle Ages, bathing was considered unhealthy and people would take a bath like once a year. It was considered an invitation to pneumonia and colds and it was just considered not a healthy thing to do. Hence, perfumes. So anyway, the idea here is Daniel is not doing any of that stuff. He is not anointing himself with oil, which is to say, perhaps fragrant oil. The other part of that, of course, is in a desert climate, olive oil is a wonderful moisturizer. So verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Obviously, this echoes John's vision of Yeshua in Revelation. And I am assuming he's seeing Yeshua. And of course, this is about four or 500 years before the incarnation. I regard this as an appearance of Yeshua before his physical birth. Again, a side note, everybody knows what beryl is. Beryl is a gemstone. Emerald, for example, is a beryl. Emerald is a barrel with green mineralization. You can get topaz, which I think is also a barrel, and that has blue, but they're typically cut square or cubic because the crystalline structure is amenable to that. So barrel is some kind of a gemstone. The color of it is not specified here, so it you know, theoretically could be an emerald or just a barrel, which is clear. They have pink, all sorts of colors. Gold of Uphaz, remember back in Genesis 2? I'm in Genesis 2.10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second was Gihon, and so forth. So the idea that certain regions produce gold that is better than others, so I'm assuming the gold of Uphaz is high quality or distinctive. 
If you go to Black Hills, you get Black Hills gold, and what those are is gold mixed with copper and so forth to give them a tint. So it may be something like that where it's a recognizable alloy that he's wearing. So I'm all the way down to verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength, which is to say his face went white, lost blood to his head, and fainted. Verse 9, And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Nice thing about fainting is when you do hit the ground, the blood flows back to your head and you wake up. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me and set me to trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So we have now a second being. You have the one who's Yeshua. As I say, his description matches the description of Yeshua in Revelation. And then you have this hand that's going to pick him up, and that's going to be Gabriel. So verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Several things here. The reason we know that it's somebody besides Yeshua is I am going to suggest that the prince of Persia would not have been able to delay Yeshua 21 days had he wanted to come. That's a theological assumption on my part. Now, a couple things. Thing one is the idea of spiritual beings that have dominion or what I would call bureaucratic responsibility for areas of the earth. So this guy is called the Prince of Persia, which I am assuming means he's a spiritual being and that his area of responsibility is geographically Persia which is modern-day Iran, and that he is a being of at least equivalent power to Gabriel, who's an archangel. And in fact, in order for Gabriel to burn through, he has to get Michael, who is another archangel, to come and help him. Based on those data points, I am assuming that the Prince of Persia is himself an archangel. From there, I am also now assuming that he is one of those who followed Satan. Notice I put a whole bunch of assumptions there together. And please understand, they are all assumptions. Scripture doesn't say that. I'm simply making inference from what we know. So that's sort of thing one. The idea that there are spiritual authorities that are territorial in nature and those spiritual authorities who are territorial in nature are not always benign. And there is, in fact, a conflict going on in the spiritual realm, if you will, that we only see the fallout from, my own buddy. One of the things that it says in the Torah, when a city goes into idolatry, 
What does it say to do? Destroy it, kill everybody in it, and don't ever build there again. And I infer from that that what you have is a territorial spirit that is anchored to that territory who has managed to corrupt the people there and turn them to worshiping false gods. And so when you finally destroy that center of false worship, you don't want to build anything there again because the demon doesn't die with the people. That's Johnnyology. That, again, is a bunch of assumptions. Thing two is notice that Daniel is fasting and praying for three weeks. And notice the first thing that the angel says. Verse 12. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So how long did it take before Daniel's prayer was answered? It was answered immediately. So when Daniel prayed, his prayer was heard, and it was answered immediately. When did he see the answer to his prayer? Three weeks later. From that, I infer that when you pray to God, you get an answer immediately. But what you may not see for some period of time is any results of that prayer. And there are several reasons why that could be. Reason number one is static, spiritual interference. The messenger who is sent to do whatever needs to be done to answer your prayer is delayed and tangled up and so forth. And number two is there may be some things that need to be put into place before the answer can manifest itself. Say, for example, you have a child and you're praying for her to get married. Well, maybe the guy that God has for her lives in Nome, Alaska, and he needs to find a job here in Colorado. You know, I understand what I'm saying? In other words, there may be a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen in the natural before the answer to that can be manifest. Time is God's way of making sure everything doesn't happen at once. To him, Everything does happen at once, but to us it happens in sequence, according to time. So, the question I would ask you is, had Daniel given up after the first week, what would have happened? The messenger is tangled up, and I am going to suggest to you that one of the things that helped the messenger burn through the interference was Daniel's continued prayer and fasting. I am of the opinion that your prayers have power. So as you continue to pray, what you're doing is you're providing not only incentive, but you're providing, as you will, blocking and tackling in front of the messenger that is coming to answer the prayer. And one of the things I will suggest is notice that the prayer got answered immediately. You pray, a decision is made when the prayer is heard. God makes a decision, yes, no, wait. Whatever decision he makes is made. I mean, he doesn't need to, well, gee, I don't know. Let me think about this for a while. So the decision is made. And I will suggest then that your prayer should change. As I would describe it, prayer is a seed. When you do your initial prayer, you have planted a seed. Now what you're doing is you are defending and tending that seed. So in the case of our mythological boyfriend in Nome, Alaska, pray for a spouse for your daughter 
And then you start praying, well, whatever is hindering this guy, I pray that you get that out of the way. And if he needs to move to this area, I pray that you would release him from where he is going. And if he needs a job here, I pray that you would find him work here close to us so that the two of them could, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? I'm no longer praying, send a spouse. I am now praying, God, I'm going to assume that you're going to send me a spouse. Now I'm working through the process of getting him here. I don't know what Daniel was praying. He doesn't talk about his prayer here. Remember, he had that prayer that in the beginning of chapter 9. And again, that seems to have been a one-shot deal where he humbles himself before God, confesses the sins of himself and his fathers, and says, God, the time you decreed is about up, and now I ask that you ask in your mercy. He plays that once, and a whole bunch of stuff starts cascading from there. So I don't know what he's praying for in this particular instance, but I suspect that he is praying for understanding, because this is going to be the third time he has received answers about the kingdoms that will follow on from Babylon. Remember, he had the prayer where we had the four beasts. Then we had the goat and the ram. Now we have this detailed list of what's going on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So this is the same vision three different times. And if you go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's now four times. And quite frankly, it disturbs Daniel. So 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, when having the appearance of a man touched me and straightened me, he said, O greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you, what is inscribed in the book of truth, there is none who contends by my side against those except Michael, your prince. So you have Gabriel and Michael contending against Greece and Persia. Now, I'm going to switch you to the screen behind me. And what you have in front of you on the screen is the Greek Empire. This is the Greek Empire after its division on Alexander's death. And you've all heard the history before. Alexander died at the age of 33. Interestingly, he left a son. He married a princess. And she bore him a son after he died. One of his generals, Cassander, said, huh, that's a problem, and killed this child and the princess. So. Alexander's got no heirs at this point. So the empire is divided up among his four generals. His generals are Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Going back up now to the map, Cassander, 
has the area in green, which is Greece. Lysimachus has the area in brown, which is Macedonia. Seleucus has that large area in yellow. And then Ptolemy has the area in sort of blue-purple, which is in North Africa and Egypt. What's going to happen is those four kings are going to be at war for the next two centuries. They're always squabbling back and forth. And it's going to boil down to the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So the Seleucids are in the north and the Ptolemies are in Egypt. And in Daniel, they are called respectively the king of the north and the king of the south. So when we talk about the king of the north, we're talking about Seleucids. And when we're talking about the king of the south, we're talking about the Ptolemies. So this is north and south with respect to Israel. And to the north, you have got Europe and Asia. And in Europe and Asia, you've got wheat, grain, you've got gold, you've got silk, you've got tremendous wealth in trade goods. In the south, in Africa, you've got, again, grain. Egypt has been a breadbasket for the world at that time. You've got ivory. You've got luxury goods like monkeys and apes and big cats for pets and all sorts of stuff. You've got elephants to make war. One of the things that's involved here is Hannibal with his elephants. Hannibal, by the way, comes from Carthage. And Carthage, on this map, if you look at the Ptolemaic Empire, and you go over to the left on the Ptolemaic Empire, you see the peninsula that goes out there. That area is Carthage. And Carthage is a Phoenician colony. And Phoenicia, by the way, is just north of Israel. Lebanon, Phoenicia, Tyre, Sidon and Tyre, that area is Phoenicia. So before the Phoenicians, the only way that you could move an army from north to south is through Israel. The Phoenicians invented blue water sailing. So before the Phoenicians, you couldn't move an army because the Mediterranean was in the way. And of course, you have the Arabian Desert to the south and to the, and to the east. And so moving an army through the Arabian Desert is also difficult. So when you want to do lots of trade, you want to move armies and so forth, you really need to have Israel because that's the land bridge between Europe and Africa. And that, of course, is where God plants his people. And I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Anybody ever go bird hunting? And you walk through a briar patch, and you come out, and you've got briars all over your trousers and stuff. And you walk along, and you're picking briars off your trousers and, and so forth, and you're picking duck briars off your bird dog. Well, what you're doing is you're transplanting briars. And so every time an empire goes through Israel, what they do is they pick up Hebrews. And you wind up then with Hebrews all over this map. And they've got synagogues all the way down the Nile in Egypt. They've got synagogues all the way over to Persia and India. They've got synagogues all the way over to Rome and Greece. And of course, that's where Paul does his missionary journeys. So, the sequence is God plants his people on this north-south choke point between Egypt and Eurasia, and he puts his word there. So the next thing that you have is Alexander 
conquers the area, and Alexander brings the Greek language. And in fact, Alexander was aggressively evangelical about Greek language and culture. So every place he conquered, which is all the colored area on this map, he would have his soldiers marry local women. He would have Greek taught in the schools. So he was aggressively pushing Greek language and culture. So what you then have in this entire region is everybody can communicate in Koine Greek. So then the next thing that happens is the Roman Empire. And what Rome brings you is civil order and roads. So you have Roman roads and you have Roman civil order and you could walk anywhere in this empire unmolested as long as you didn't do anything that the Romans objected to. So you got synagogues all over this region where you have the Torah scrolls positioned. Everybody can speak Greek. So you can go anywhere in this region and you can talk to people. You've got safe travel now because of the Romans. And that's the place where God puts his Messiah. And the Gospels just explode throughout that whole region. And that entire region becomes Christian or Messianic in a very short time because the ground has been prepared. And that preparation has taken a period of almost 1,500 years. So you start with the exodus from Egypt. God puts his people right there, gives them the Torah. Then we have empires sloshing back and forth up there, picking up Jews and scattering them all over this area. Standing up here 2,000 years later, it's, wow, that's obvious. That was suggested probably wasn't obvious at the time, but you understand what I'm saying. Onward. So you have the Seleucids are the kings of the north, and the Ptolemies are the kings of the south. And then this is Daniel 11 in a nutshell. So when it talks about the king of the north in Daniel 11.5, it's talking about Ptolemy 1. And I will give you the Ptolemaic dynasties in just a minute. So the players are Ptolemies in Egypt and Seleucids in the north. And Daniel 11 goes all the way to Antiochus IV. These are the Seleucid kings. And it starts off with Seleucus I, who is the first of the kings. And he has Antiochus I, and he has Antiochus II, and so forth. Now, there's some marriages that happen in there. So you'll notice that Antiochus II marries a gal named Laodice. And, oh, by the way, does anybody know about the letter to the church at Laodicea? That city's named after her. So when he married her, he gave her the city and says, I'm giving you this city, named it after her, and it thereafter became Laodicea. So anyway, we get down to the bottom of this thing, and we have Antiochus IV, who is Epiphanes, is the one that causes most of the trouble. So I'm going to switch now over to the Ptolemies, and they start off with Ptolemy I. And one of the things you'll notice is a female, the name that runs through that is Bernice. What happens is, in order to make peace, Bernice moves over and marries one of the Seleucids. And that same guy also marries Laodice. And Laodice is an ambitious gal, so she kills Bernice and her children, which is why you don't see Bernice 
in the list of descendants on the Seleucid side, even though she was married in a state marriage over to the other side. And all of this is described in Daniel chapter 11. But if you don't know who the king of the north is and the king of the south is, and when you see that the gal moves over there and marries and all that kind of stuff, you don't have any idea what happens unless you've got all of these genealogy charts up in front of you. All of that mumming and vamping that I have just been doing is by way of avoiding chapter 11 because I, A, didn't have time to go through chapter 11 in the 15 minutes we had left, and B, chapter 11, quite frankly, I regard as a soap opera. So, next time we'll do 11 and we'll finish 12. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.